Cornucopia Radio presents Well, we, we had a call uh, from a, a man who'd uh, come across a, a body so, uh, When the pathologist arrived and uh, took his first look at the body uh, he then found that in fact the head was missing Now we were dealing with somebody who would uh, probably uh, be murdered way away from our force area. And, you know, it could have been any moment later and never would have happened. It could have been any other person at that stop sign and my father would never have reacted and seen the bike or vice versa. And um, so that's, that's how it came. He came here to buy a motorcycle. We, we had a name from, yes, from the lady who, who told us who it was, and uh, that led us to go to the, the premises of uh, Michael Telly. You know, it's just so hard because Monica was young. Um, she was beautiful. She was talented. She was quite intelligent. She was very social. People just loved Monica. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years, and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and look into cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is a murder investigation in 1983, when a decomposing body was discovered in a wooded area in Exeter, UK. Well, welcome back to the show and thank you for joining us as we continue our current case review and investigation and this is the second of the three-part series. So let's think about what we know so far. Michael Telling was a young man from a British aristocratic family, the Vestis. The Vestis business grew from the late 19th century when the brothers William and Edmund Vestie, amongst other things, pioneered cold storage food shipping. And with a successful multinational corporation comes great wealth. On the other hand... Monica Zumsteg was from a middle-class American family. Monica's parents were out for a motorcycle ride in the autumn of 1980 when a chance meeting with Michael Telling led him to being introduced to Monica. Needless to say, they fell in love and planned to marry in the US. But the wedding had to be postponed when Michael admitted that he was in fact married. His divorce was pending and he also had a young son. Monica and Michael had by this time moved to the UK and although devastated by the marriage revelation, she was still very much in love with Michael. The relationship between Michael and Monica seemed to move very quickly. We're currently talking to Monica's sister, Erica, so we asked her how long they had known each other before the marriage proposal. Less than a year, I I want to say six, I can't even quite remember, it was fairly fairly soon on 
And um, so if we met him, I, I want to say it was probably within, you know, six months. And, and during that time, did he explain what he did for a living other than the impression he gave of working for the Secret Service? No, no. He hid, he hid everything. And there is, there's just no way... I can't imagine any average person even imagining who he really was or where he actually came from. But no, that's pretty much what he stuck to. He lied about being married or, you know, that he was single. I imagine he must have lied to the church, too, because that's one of the questions they ask, you know, when uh, setting up to marry in a Catholic church. <laughs> you know, um, I a lot of things, she, you know, she, he... He really courted her, and she fell in love with him, you know, and how much is infatuation, I don't know, but he let her feel as though she is the only one and that type of stuff, and then to find out that he had been previously married and had a child was a bit of a shock to her, especially, I believe, at that point, she had already um, had given notice and resigned from her job and i think had he managed to get the divorce before the wedding date that she he would not have had to tell her so having found out did she come back to america um there was a couple times back and forth at one point she was back there before she found out and we were doing dresses and that and um there was another time she came she was very upset in fact i believe i picked her up at the san francisco airport she was very upset and just kind of distraught. And I drove her back up to Santa Rosa and, you know, she was, she was really under stress. She wasn't, I don't know what had been going on over there in the meantime, besides her finding that out. I had no idea, but all I know is that the sister I knew with a fabulous laugh and a great sense of humor, when I got her off the plane, I mean, she just seemed to be overwhelmed, stressed, and you know, I you know I think she probably started to have some drinks at that point. Not as we were driving. I'm just saying that I think that she started drinking somewhere between over stress. And again, that that time I picked her up, she was definitely not a happy person. And eventually, they do get married, don't they? Yes. So then it became, they would be married in England. And my parents and grandparents um, were then flown to England for their wedding over there. My brother and I and, and nobody else from here went, just my parents and grandparents. When your parents returned home after the wedding, did they... To say what had happened did they meet michael's family they, you know they seemed to be happy um dad seemed particularly happy you know monica and my father had an amazing relationship from the time she was born they just really connected and he seemed to be very very happy and proud for monica and michael had rather endeared himself I'm not aware of them meeting a lot of the family, you know, and in fact, you know, when Monica first went over and, and, and connected with Michael, she wasn't aware 
of him being connected to this large family of the Vestes and all that, you know, and that gradually, you know, obviously became knowledge, you know, because you can't hide too much of that either. Um, again, I don't think that the family came out in, you know, with flowers and throwing rice. We've mentioned that Michael had put this smoke screen up to disguise who he was and give her explanations that he worked for the government and the security service. When did you actually learn that that wasn't true and that who he actually was? When Monica went over there and at some point when they got the house, uh, Lumborn house out in Buckinghamshire, you know, and having to meet with the lawyer barristers and this, it became obvious. And there was one meeting I know Monica a meeting with some of the family and I remember uh, you know the comment was you know Michael haven't you told her the family was aware that Michael was not telling Monica that um, so everything became gradual to her and, and it seemed to me each time she found something new about him and discovered more about who she was really involved with it was just you know another like wow moment and, you know, I, it's my opinion that Mike was basically a black sheep or hidden or ignored or, you know, he wasn't the favorite of the family, I would say. And so I think a lot of times my my take from the Michael I knew was that, you know, with all the money and everything, he could pretend who he wanted to be. Almost pathological. He could. He had the means to convince people, not just to say what he was, but to convince them. Um, his personality and everything else would go along with his lies. And if he wanted more money to, you know, get further in whatever he was doing or trying the facades he was trying to create, he just had to ask for more than his lot for the month. In my opinion, you know, the family tried to distance and and respect the uh, i think to summarize where we are with that was the 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 vesti family were a very very wealthy english family and michael was in receipt of like a trust fund by his grandfather i think it was so monica and michael presumably didn't do any work and all the bills were paid for by the trust fund well, and this is an interesting part as well, because Monica, we were not raised to be impressed with others' achievements or wealth. It's what you earned, and it's a thought that counts. And Monica, she was so outgoing and so optimistic all the time, and she always was in search of more learning opportunities. And when it was found that Michael was part of this family that literally allowed him to do nothing with this fortune, my father and my sister actually tried to help Michael uh, to start a business. And because of the motorcycles, for instance, um, this would be a big one, Frank Thomas motorcycle boots and accessories were made there in England. And so my father worked with Michael and Monica to try to start exporting business here to the United States um, with these motorcycle boots. And another, try to get him a job, try to get him to become something other than that. 
And uh, it's my recollection that my parents actually took a second mortgage on their home in order to be part of this business adventure. So Frank Thomas Motorcycle Boots, we created a Redwood Cycle Scene here in Santa Rosa in the States. And Michael on his end would be doing his part and getting the materials and things would be shipped here. And, uh, you know, and that, you know, different stuff started happening with that. We had sponsored motorcycle riders and racers here and, and all that. So there was actually an attempt by my sister and my father to help him separate from that fortune that he, he, cause he had no, he had no work. He had no career. He had nothing other than what that fortune afforded him. Holding on to that thought, Erica, that must be really difficult because you and your siblings had come from a background where you were used to being independent and earning what you had. And then Michael comes along and he doesn't work for a living and he he obviously hasn't got the same um, work ethic or, or, or morals that, that you and your family have. It was a bit difficult. And when you mention the work ethic, um, my mother uh, was born in 1929, Switzerland, during the Depression and raised during the war. And then she made her way. She didn't have an easy upbringing. She made her way here to this country. And my father, very hardworking <laughs> and uh, and we were raised. It didn't matter whether you're boy or girl. Um my proper upbringing, to me, it doesn't matter how much money a parent has or a house as a child, that is theirs. You didn't earn it. It's not something you are entitled to, but you have opportunity from. You know, we had somewhat of a strict upbringing, I suppose, but you were held responsible. And, you know, we cared for our family deeply. And much of the time we made things, not that you couldn't buy things, of course, we could buy things, but it's a thought that counts. And it's those kind of little trinkets and things like for Monica. Monica loved to make things, and I still have quite a few of those. So from what Erica says, it sounds very much like um, Lou, Erica and Monica's father, wanted to help Michael, didn't they? Michael didn't have to work. We know that, don't we, that he had money at, uh, enough to finance his lifestyle and way beyond the income of the average American family like the Zumstegs. So, yes, I think uh, they come to the conclusion that to sort of focus Michael, they try and get him involved in a business idea and hopefully that would help him to uh, to calm down a bit, I think, and, and be a a normal working person in the street. And when you think about it, they're both at the extremes. Monica is independent, living in Sacramento, got a successful career. And Michael, on the other hand, is very reliant on that that family fortune. It must have been a strange situation, really, wasn't it? Because Monica, from what we've been told, was an intelligent lady who was focused on a career in business, had set a stall out to be successful and wanted to be successful. And just this chance meeting introduced her to this Englishman who was the complete opposite. He didn't have to do anything. No, that, that that's right. And 
and thinking about Monica, work gives you purpose, doesn't it? It structures your day. It gives you a purpose and you earn your own money. To work for a living as an everyday person does help your mental stability. A lot of people can't cope with having wealth with just given them and then they haven't earned it as so to speak you know it's not there as it's been given them and i think mike a lot of michael's problems were the fact that he wasn't an ordinary everyday guy now and those mental health issues sort of manifested themselves from him being very young because he was in receipt of a psychiatric treatment from a very young age, wasn't he? And spent some time in a psychiatric unit. Yes, and people with mental health problems very often stabilise. If they have got a routine, they go to work, they come home, they save the money, they spend it on what they want. And Michael didn't have any of that. Yeah, and going on from those mental health issues, Michael had his own physical health issues, didn't he? Well, as well as uh, the mental side of his uh, problems, he he'd, was a type 1 diabetic, wasn't he? Which, which, from what we know, is quite common these days, and but does affect your well-being and your stability if it's not controlled. And I don't think he did control it, did he? He didn't look after himself. No, I mean, we've heard it from several sources that he, he went into mood swings and became off balance, so to speak, if he, if he hadn't taken his medication correctly and on time. As well as Michael, we've got to consider how the effect of meeting Michael and, and, and eventually marrying him changed her life in respect of money, isn't it? I mean, she, as we know, she earned her own income. All of a sudden, she doesn't have to work. What effect has it had on her, this massive change in circumstances? I mean, that's right. Monica was... At, at the time that she met Michael, was very independent. She was living up in Sacramento. She got her own apartment. She got a fairly successful career with the company that she was working with. And then when she moves over to the UK, she obviously gives up a job and she doesn't have to work. She's in the same situation as Michael is. And it, it, it makes me wonder what kind of effect that could have had upon the way that she feels, being so fiercely independent prior to meeting Michael. And also, we've heard that, and how many times do we see it in the media and tragic stories that go before the criminal courts that, you know, people with great wealth who don't work very often turn to drink or drugs or both. And Monica started to drink, didn't she? And, and got herself in a mess herself. Yeah, yeah. So... Not only is Michael in a fragile state, then Monica also goes into decline, which was quite obvious, I think, to the Zumstegs in America when they talked to her or saw her. And all of a sudden, there's two of them living together with issues that clearly are going to explode at some stage, aren't they? But I, I think in, in genuinely that Monica really tried to help Michael and, you know, this this thing that her father, Lou, was getting going to have this business so that they could have a an export business and get involved in exporting motorcycle boots. It, it was almost as, as if both of them were trying to give him a purpose. 
But I think that was also giving Monica a purpose, carrying on from this work ethic that, that she had. Yeah, I think we can only speculate the effect it had on Monica's parents because they had been witnesses to all this going off and the decline in Monica's health. The key ingredient between them all is the fact that they were all into motorbikes, weren't they? You know, Michael obviously loved motorbikes. He was in America to buy one. The Zumstegs were brought up riding motorbikes, the children and the adults. And I think... If I was in Lou's position, I'd think, what could we do to get them together? What and, is he interested in? Yeah. Yeah. And they start making and importing motorcycle boots, which was obviously a good idea. Um, and I'm sure that they wanted to focus both Michael and Monica on a career. And they set out to try. And as we know, wasn't that successful in the end. So thinking about Michael and Monica as a young, newly married couple... It makes you wonder what their daily married life would have been like. And that's what we asked Erica to describe to us. That's when it started getting pretty crazy. Um, you know, I think I started realising um, at one point that Monica was... You know, she she didn't always come straight out and wear her heart on the sleeve, per se. Um, but she called one time and she really was trying to encourage me to come there and come and live there with her for, I don't know, a while or for however long. Um, and went as far as to tell me that I could have a piano and a horse. And these are two things that Monica knows that I love. I still have the piano I've grown up with and, and the horses. I had to earn my first horse. And, but the thing was that I had my first car loan. So, again, these things were things that we did on our own that we were proud of. And, you know, so I had a first used car loan. And, you know, a gentleman that I was interested in. And so I told her, Monica, I can't come there. I need to, you know, I want to take care of my car and I have a job. So I didn't go. And then there were times, there was one time, I think it was when Michael, oh, geez, there's a couple times that she came back and was just incredibly upset. And I'm thinking that one of the times um, Michael, I think, had been arrested for firearms and uh, he apparently was not allowed to leave the country. And Monica, at that point, you know, she had, Monica, I don't think, believe was an alcoholic. Monica was drinking at. She began drinking at uh, the fear and and such. And so she came back here while he was over there. And she came here for approximately a month and put herself into a recovery program, which my father helped her work through. And... You know, she came back out of that and stronger. And I mean, I was able to enjoy with my sister shopping and laughing. And that laugh, oh my gosh, that laugh, <laughs> fabulous laugh. Um, you know, and then she went back again. And, you know, and there was a one time I think they went to a family's wedding and she had a Formula 400. It was a, a Trans Am. And I don't know, Michael was acting up and such. And she, I mean, she was, you know, she said he was actually ramming the car that they were in. And there was times where he was bringing, you know, 
people home, you know, kind of rough types, bikery people or such, you know, people that were not, um, people that were only there because Michael was able to supply them with things through his money. And Monica was definitely not comfortable with all these strange people. And I think at one point, um, actually, she came home and the power and everything was shut off. She was horrified. And then he came back. He'd gone to Australia or something and then came back again, apologizing, giving her jewelry and back on again. You know, just different threats and craziness going on. Is it fair to say that the marriage was quite a stormy one? Um, You've mentioned that Monica came back to the States a couple of times. Michael had gone to Australia by the sound of it and left Monica. Is is that how the marriage seemed to be throughout the, the period they were married? What it seemed to be was Monica had fallen in love with this gentleman, you know, at some point she had actually fallen in love with him and Monica cared for people. She, in so many ways, she loved people. Um, The more he had problems, the more Monica wanted to help, the more Monica wanted to fix him or not. I don't know about fix him, but help him because she was also discovering yes it was a it was like a roller coaster that's what i would say it's a roller coaster michael much like a child very much like a child and what he would do is he would have what you would consider a temper tantrum whatever it is that offset him off you know, you have a temper tantrum and like a child only with a lot of money he would then do things you know um and control things um, and then he would come back as though Monica would maybe like his mother and, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, it's okay. I love you. And so it was that time and Monica would then gain, um, energy again towards, okay, it'll be okay. And, you know, if we go to counseling, if we get some help, you know, one of the last conversations my mother had with Monica, she was scared she was tired she was scared and but she still wanted to help him and she, my mom told her monica please come home to this day at 91 years old my mother still can repeat that i remember telling her just come home monica and monica told her that you know i i can help michael and so monica is she was always kind of a caregiver, I mean, with the family and such as well. I mean, Mark and I, my twin, we so loved and trusted Monica. She played jokes on us and things and like any other sibling. But, oh, my gosh, she genuinely loved people. And you could rely on her. And she tried to love Michael, trying to get him into a job, a career um, that was part of you know, Monica trying to help when she found out really what she had, she had come into. Is it right to say that Monica wanted a conventional marriage? And obviously that's just something that she didn't have with Michael because of um, his background. I would say that's probably true. A traditional marriage. She wanted the, the church wedding, the Catholic church, um, and went to those extents to do that. 
um, when she got to uh, England and they bought Lamborn House. <laughs> I always laugh because I always called it Lamborni. But uh, Lamborn, I mean, she set out to start making a home. She was excited about making a home. And she was excited about um, creating her new life in England. You know, she would have been a good mother. <laughs> I think her kids would have been very happy. And so unfortunate because I'll never be that aunt. As we know, Sally, from our police backgrounds and yours, particularly as a solicitor involved with crime matters, this type of incident is sadly not uncommon, is it, where marriages break down for various reasons. And if you don't have any problems, you're very lucky. And most marriages go through rough patches, don't they? But we get involved very often at the extreme ends, don't we? Yeah, and it's sadly, it's a regular occurrence. And I think when you first get together, when you first get married, it's a change from living on your own to living with somebody else. Suddenly, you're not one individual, you are... You're a couple, and that brings one sort of adjustment. And then as you carry on with your your married life, and either if you've got children or you haven't got children, there's different aspects that can bring controversy between the two of you. It could be work. It could be one's working, one's not working. It could be neither of them are working. It could be that both of them are working too much and they're having very little home time together. It could be an economic situation and it could be a children's situation. It could be that their respective families don't don't get on and, and there's a clash there. There's all sorts of reasons for a couple to get into, I shan't say trouble, but just controversial issues. And the other thing is that very often, I mean, when they police and social workers and all the other bodies involved try and help and try and sort out people's problems and from a police perspective you know one of the partners may get themselves arrested to take them away from the scene and subsequently over days and weeks they make up again don't they and then inevitably inevitably make up and the majority of cases they make up don't they and realize that perhaps they've been a bit silly and stupid and try again and sort out the problems. And then, of course, the police and the prosecution side of police work is in the awkward position where, in the heat of the moment, they make a statement accusing the partner of whatever they've done, violence and assaults or whatever, and now they don't want any action taken because they've made up and want to withdraw their complaint. If a couple call the police... Supposing one party's been injured by the other, fueled by alcohol or fueled by an argument, and the police arrive and tensions are running high, and the party that's that's done the assaulting gets arrested and carted off to the police station, then the person that's left behind, the injured person, sits and thinks about that and thinks, you know, if my partner is no longer on the scene... How does that affect where I live? How does that affect my work? How does that affect my mental well-being? And then at the end of 
that thought process. If you think, I can't live without this person, that's when they retract the complaints from the police. And the police are then left with a situation where they may have charged one individual and then they've got the victim of the crime not willing to support a prosecution. And that's at the point where the prosecution have to say to themselves, can we prove this crime against this person without that injured person giving us the evidence? And of course, the things that the prosecution will look at is the telephone call, usually the 999 call that's called the police out. You know, did it come from a neighbour? Did it come from the injured party? What was said? Could what was said be proved by playing that in a court of law? So even though one party doesn't support a prosecution, that doesn't necessarily mean to say that it won't go ahead. And we're left in the position that's very common and sadly very common that if there isn't any prosecution and it calms down, they live happily ever after. But in many cases, that really happens. That really happens. And then, of course, the police and the prosecution service and the all the support is under the microscope. Why didn't you do something sooner or why didn't you prosecute? But the bottom line is, if there's no evidence, more than likely you can't proceed. So if the complainant withdraws their evidence, there's nothing to go to court with, as you say. Sometimes there is. And in fact, there's been some high-profile cases, hasn't there, where the prosecutions were continued and they got convicted, even though the complainant didn't want to proceed. So it still can be done, but it's difficult, isn't it? It still can be done. Sometimes domestics are one person's word against the other because it's behind closed doors and it's in their own home. Nobody else is privy to it. But on some occasions, the neighbours might hear the noise or the argument may run out onto the to the street, spill out onto the street. Or it may be that one of the parties decides to ring the police themselves. And as we know, sadly, situations get out of control and somebody is seriously injured or murdered. And as we know, statistically... Most murder victims are known to the perpetrator, aren't they? Normally they yeah. are a friend or a, a, a spouse, family member. Very rarely do you get random killings. They're normally escalations of problems within families. And sadly, the end result is a death of somebody. And then, of course, it all has gone wrong and the police arrive again and then it's a murder investigation. And when the police are called to these incidents, they're very sad, aren't they? Because normally the victim and the perpetrator loved each other at one stage. They may have been together quite some considerable time and all of a sudden problems have arisen and inevitably somebody dies. It might not be all of a sudden though, John. It might have been a situation that's that's continued for years and years and with that situation continuing one party or the other just comes to the end of the tether and it all blows up and all the pent-up feelings that they've kept inside spill over and you end up with a 
a very nasty situation. But like you say, these things are always very sad because at, at one time couples were together because they wanted to be together and they stayed together because they wanted to stay together. And now the relationships run its course and it's it's ended in disaster. So thinking of this in the context of Michael and Monica's marriage, it would appear that that Michael was quite angry, quite violent, I suppose quite spoilt. And as we're aware, the police did attend the house of Michael and Monica after domestic incidents. And in fact, we've managed to trace one of the police officers who, who witnessed this firsthand. Yes, my name is Stephen Thrift. Um, I'm a f- former Thames Valley Police Detective. I joined in uh, way back in 1976 and I served for just over 10 years. I was the duty COD officer in uh, Tame Police Station um, way back in December 1982. And um, I was called to go and visit a man called Michael Telling because he had committed criminal damage in Surrey at the behest of uh, the Surrey police, they, I was to go there and arrest him for that offence. With one of his cars, he had barged into several other cars and um, written, off, uh, written off another car. So I went there to arrest him, and that was, the, that was my initial reason for going there. Was that something to do with a... Was it a wedding party that he'd gone, you know, uh, berserk at? Yes, it was a wedding reception, and he had, he'd been upset because a member of his family one of the uh, wives had been given a fur coat and his wife hadn't been given it so he went berserk he, he told his wife that they were leaving and she said well you can leave but I'm not and um, and that's how it happened. So sorry police asked Thames Valley which is common uh, police practice isn't it if it's outside the force you ask a neighbouring force to go around and make the arrest and then they come and interview or return the prisoner to their force area isn't it? Yes that's correct. And what what happened when you arrived and first met the Tellings? Um, well, I didn't meet them both because Monica wasn't there. I went to his house, which at the time was it was a beautiful building. I first saw that there was a fire in one of the outbuildings, which I put out, and that was her personal belongings that he set fire to. Then I noticed that the only light on in the house was in the kitchen, and um, I knocked on the kitchen door. He said, you can't come in because... I need to speak to my solicitor first. And he had locked the door. So uh, I suggested he spoke to a solicitor and allowed me to speak to him when he got through to him. And he fell for that. So I, I got into the house. I was with another police officer, a more senior police officer. Um, and he, he, he was wandering about, went into the next room. And um, he put his hand underneath a cushion and I could see the glint of a pistol barrel. So that's when things started to go slightly wrong. What was his demeanour like? Was he agitated? He was very agitated, yes. I spoke to the solicitor and told him that I couldn't speak to him. I would speak to him when I got back to the police station. Um, he wasn't very happy, but I put the phone down on, on him. And that seemed to make telling even more agitated. So unbeknown to you, he, he then produces this gun. And does he threaten you with it? Well, he, he didn't quite get that fight. He put his hand on it as a firearms officer, not being allowed to carry a firearm to that event. I am... Um, recognised it for what it was, and I dealt with the situation there and then. So having disarmed him, what what happened then? 
Well, I arrested him and um, I found a machine gun behind the settee and several hundred rounds of ammunition and um, K rations, enough to start a small war. And then I took him to Aylesbury Police Station, where I questioned him slightly. But he, he told me that he was mentally ill and um, therefore the interview was stopped at that stage. Were the firearms active? Firearms were very active, yes. There was a Colt 357 Magnum with a 12-inch barrel and an, uh, an AR-15 uh, machine gun. And was your license for those? No. They were smuggled into the UK in, in freight um, from the USA. So he was in possession of, obviously, quite powerful weapons, wasn't he? Um, yes, two of the most powerful weapons in the world at the time. And what was the subsequent action that was taken? Well, he, he went to court for that. He went to court to Aylesbury Crown Court. The hearing was heard in closed court, which, to my mind or, or my knowledge, is only heard for terrorist offences and offences against the state. Um, but this one was heard in closed court. The public and press were thrown out. And he was fined £10,000 for, for the offences. Um, and what happened after that? Well, as he left the court, I heard him say, I told you, you can get away with anything if you've got the money. And did you know who Michael Tallinn was at that time? I presume you did. Uh, when I went to, to arrest him, I had no idea who he was. And I had no real idea who the Vesties were because... Um, they are, were and still are a secretive family. I had no idea, but obviously subsequently I did. And I, because he put himself into a mental institution, I interviewed him over a period of about two months and probably half a dozen times in a mental asylum in Northampton. And at some stage you got in contact and spoke to his wife, Monica. Yeah, Mon when he was arrested, Monica came to see me at, at Aylesbury Police Station and she was, um, she was a frightened lady. She was a very frightened woman um, who told me that on previous occasions he had held uh, two guns to her head and uh, recently he had played Russian roulette with her. The gun was at her head with, with one bullet in the chamber and, he, and he'd uh, frightened her almost to death at that stage. Um, what did you make of Michael Tallinn overall, the whole picture of your involvement? Uh, as a man, do you mean? Well, yes, is is sort of, you know, how would you assess his... Uh, mental health? Well, not being a doctor, I would say that um, he was probably as sane as I was at the time, but I found that he was, um, I described him as a, a wheezy little man. I didn't, wasn't impressed with him at all, and I, I am surprised that people were taken in uh, by his lies that he was MI5 and uh, SAS, because he looked nothing like any SAS officer that I've ever known. But he was clearly uh, sort of uh, making up fantasy stories, wasn't he? Yes, he wasn't delusional. It was just lies that he was making up. Yeah, yeah, probably purporting to be something he wasn't to impress people, I suppose. Yes, um, he liked to impress people with the, with that and and his money and his his well his goods that he, that he had from the Bestie Trust. A result of your interest in this case and obviously having knowledge of Michael Telling and Monica, you've written a book, haven't you? Yes, I've written a book. Uh, the book is called Telling Lies. It's the story of Michael Telling from, well, his family's origins to his death, which is an incredibly, in my mind, an interesting story and a unique story that reads as fiction and uh, as full of fantasy as he was. During your enquiries 
gaining information about the book, did you uncover other friends and associates living locally that she uh, befriended? Yes, but although most of them are either moved away or, or dead now, I, I managed to contact her best friend, whose name at the time that she knew Monica was Christina Percy. Christina moved, because of the case, she moved to North Scottish Islands to escape uh, the wrath of uh, Michael Telling because she was frightened of him. And did Christina witness any strange behaviour or odd odd events while they were friends? Yes, she witnessed in, uh, well, whilst they lived uh, in Tunbridge Wells, she witnessed an event where Telling produced a pistol, threatened to kill himself and smashed up the railings of a stairway and threw them at Christina, her boyfriend and Monica. Then he disappeared into the darkness, purporting to say he was going to kill himself. But he didn't. He came back and threatened Monica with a gun. And was any of those reported to the police? At the time, no, they weren't. They were, they were just terrified of him, basically. The three people were terrified of him. So it's quite clear the picture that's emerging of Michael is that he clearly suffered some abnormal sort of behaviour and prone to violence and rage and producing guns and damaging houses, cars. That's that's a reasonable assessment, I think. I think so, yes, but that's, that seems to be the picture from uh, an early age. When he was a child, he, he, he was a, a nasty child. He would uh, damage things. He set fire to a, a school, um, and he was just a nasty child and a nasty adult as well, in my opinion. Yes, yeah, so we've read, uh, Sally and I have read, all the paper, newspaper cuttings of the court case, and it's quite clear that it is, is from a very early age he's suffered or exhibited bizarre behaviour, hasn't he? Absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah, f- almost a fantasy world he was in, wasn't it? Yes, he lived a fantasy world, for sure. And the, po- the point about that was that money was never any option for, for Michael Telling. It was a way to, for him to make friends. He could, he could give things away, to, like Rolex watches, which he did frequently, but it was, the money was never an issue for him, and it never meant anything to him, in my opinion. Whoa, listening to that, that's a real escalation in, in how Michael's behaviour manifests itself, isn't it? I think Steve outlines what we thought already, that Michael's behaviour was so erratic and unpredictable I mean, his behaviour at the wedding, you know, smashing cars up and doing whatever he was doing, just shows what sort of person he was, doesn't he? And then when Steve visited the house to arrest him on behalf of Surrey Police, what actually happened at the house was bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when when you think about the guns that he has got, a three five seven Magnum Colt and then a machine gun, and it sounds like they were smuggled into the country and they certainly weren't licensed at all why why would you have such weapons in your home and i i think there's two possibilities i think one is is living out this military fantasy and the power that 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 brings or secondly is got them to frighten and threaten and intimidate well, I, I would go down more the line of the military fantasy line because soldiers carry guns and he's purporting to be not only a soldier but an SAS officer going on 
missions and manoeuvres and and these fantasy lies that he's spun to many people, including the Zumstegs. But if he wanted to back his story up that he was in the military, he'd produce his gun. Very bizarre and strange behaviour. And he also had the K-rations, didn't he? And those are military survival rations, for want of a better phrase. It comes back to this fantasy of going on special missions, doesn't it? You know, he's got the equipment to back it up if somebody questions. says, look, this is my kit. This is what I, I carry. And we know that he, he liked the American police, didn't he? You know, a three five seven Magnum gun, handgun, possibly something that they would have carried in America at that time. Because we're going back to the early 80s, aren't we, when the gun laws in the UK particularly were a lot more lax than they are today. Yeah, I mean, the law now in 2021 regarding gun law is much more strict and administered much more strictly than it was going back to the early 80s. But when you think about it, there was two incidents in the UK that led to changes in gun law. And the first one, if you remember, was Michael Ryan in 1987. He killed 16 people in Hungerford. He just walked down the road firing indiscriminately at people and actually killed 16 people before he turned the gun on himself. So that was the first one. And the second one, if you remember, was Thomas Hamilton. And in 1996, he went into a primary school in Dunblane in Scotland and he shot a teacher and 16 of her pupils and also injured another 15 of the children. And those were the two incidents that that made the UK tighten up on their um on on the gun law and certainly nobody now can legally possess a handgun can they no that's right the the escalation had been coming for some time hadn't it where we, we, the gun law in the 80s and and before that was quite quite lax and of course weapons became more sophisticated I would think most farmers in England would have shotguns and had them for generations, and now and, and had them for legitimate reasons. Yes, oh, shooting quite. rats and yep. uh, controlling vermin, that kind of thing. And of course, military equipment all the time gets more advanced. So not only was the the guns freely available, shotguns and all that type of thing, but then comes along high powered automatic weapons, which this was, and the ones used in these uh, mass murders were of a similar type. And, of course, they recognised the fact that handguns, you can conceal them, so we'd ban all handguns, and it, and it's they've been banned now for 20 years, is it? I can't remember exactly. A long time. And, of course, then they recognised that automatic weapons, like a machine gun or a semi-automatic weapon where a machine gun, you pull the trigger and it keeps firing until you take your finger off the trigger. A semi-automatic one, every time you pull the trigger, it fires till the magazine's empty. So they were mass-killing weapons and, of course, they decided to ban them as well. So 
both categories of the guns that Michael had, the handgun and the machine gun, are now banned. And if you're caught with those now, you'd get a, a very heavy sentence, wouldn't you? Yeah, but thinking about it, Thomas Hamilton, he had two handguns when he went into that school in Dunblane. One was a nine millimeter Browning and the other one was a three five seven Magnum Colt revolver. The same sort that Michael had in his house only what well over ten years ten years earlier. Again I think it comes back to I'm no expert on guns, although you know I, I've had guns of my own in the past. You know, a three five seven Magnum I think is one of the, if not the most powerful handguns in the world. So it's a power thing as well, isn't it? It's funny how those people have that sort have, of weapon. Have the same weapon, yeah. So when we think about the incident when Steve Thrift went to Michael and Monica's house, Lambourne House in, in Buckinghamshire, and he found these uh, two guns, the the Magnum and the, the machine gun, as a result of that, he gets charged and has to go to court, doesn't he? Yes, and Steve says, for reasons unknown to us and to him, the actual court case, where he must have pleaded guilty, was held sort of privately in the court, wasn't it? So the trial in a closed court, that's really quite unusual, isn't it? I think it's, and you'll know better than I probably, that it's it's reserved for high security matters and, and very rarely used, isn't it? The normal everyday business of the court is open to the public, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I mean, you can have public interest immunity uh, applications, which basically you're, you're saying to the court, I want to have this hearing in private, in a closed court, for a particular reason, well, not just a particular reason, an exceptional reason. And I can remember I only ever did one that wasn't a public interest immunity application per se. It was the precursor to us making that application. And it was when the police had used somebody's house as an observation point. And for the trial to go ahead, it would have, in normal terms, in an open court, the people whose house the police used would have been identified and thereby put them in danger. So that they are unusual in in today's circumstances. And I'm guessing they were just as unusual back in the 80s. I mean, the more I've, as you know, uh, and we've said before, I read extensively on espionage and security issues that are in the public domain because they're in books. And the truth is we will never know why, if it took place, why it did. But it's not beyond the possibility, the more I've thought about it, is that it's not unusual for security services to use business people who travel the world as people who help the security services out. And I know Michael's security SAS involvement clearly is a lot of fantasy but there is a, a slight possibility that he did do something and of course that would 
go in mitigation for him, and we'll never oh, know. Yeah. We'll never know the reason. But was there something that he did? Obviously, he spun the stories and you know making it up as he went along. I am at a loss why. Are you giving his story a grain of truth then? When he says he was an SAS man or a military man, well, are, are you giving that story a grain of truth? Can can you think of a genuine reason why that case was? In... I can't think of a reason why a case of somebody having illegal firearms goes to court, and there be any reason why it should be behind closed doors. I I, I can't think of any reason other than protecting some of the individuals in the case. And I don't think because a rich family go to court does help them in any way, does it really? They can buy good legal advice and very good performing barristers because they can afford to pay them that can convince the judge one way or the other which way they want to go. But it doesn't necessarily mean you get preferential treatment, does it? It doesn't mean you get preferential treatment. All cases should be dealt with in the same way, unless, as I say, there are exceptional circumstances why they shouldn't be treated as normal cases. But you know that because we've got an adversarial system, it's not about finding out the truth. It's about undermining the rest of the case. And a lot of these flamboyant barristers who are very eloquent and speak very well, that's what you pay for. So really, money can buy you knowledge and quality. It doesn't necessarily influence justice, does it? No. No, you can you can have the best barrister in the land and pay top money but the system is the system and should apply across the board now i'm i'm thinking about monica's part in all of this because monica must have known that he'd got guns and ammunition and weaponry and we've heard that he played russian roulette with her and and russian roulette's where you put around in one of the chambers and then and then you spin it so that when you pull the trigger you don't know whether the round is in that chamber or not that's right and is it possible that michael put a blank round in the chamber unbeknown to monica and if she thought it was a genuine one and and played this russian roulette michael would know that it could never go off but Monica didn't. Is but, he playing from, with her? That's right. From from Monica's point of view, even if the whole gun was empty, the fact that somebody holds a handgun to your head and keeps pulling the trigger, it's it's off it's it's off the scale, isn't it? it we've gone from beyond an abusive relationship and we've moved it up a gear. Yeah. Or two or three gears, because to do that to somebody who is your partner, your wife, is, I just, I just cannot imagine it. So we're still looking to hear from different people and 
different viewpoints on this case. In fact, Steve Thrift has written the book, hasn't he? It's called Telling Lies. That's going to be published later this year. And it's interesting that in that book, there are a couple of chapters that are written by Monica's friend, Christina, Monica's very good friend. Now, she was happy to speak to Steve and contribute to his book. But I think that gave her closure because we have been in contact with her and she she didn't want to be part of the podcast. And that's that's understandable. I think writing for the book, she's got some level of closure on her relationship, her friendship with with Monica. And she wanted to leave it at that. And and as I say, that's that's understandable. Yeah, we both agreed and we're not in the business of uh, pursuing people. We respect their privacy, don't we? And she was happy for the extract to be used by us, but didn't want to discuss it live. Yeah, and with Steve's kind permission, we're going to use Christina's words, but they will be spoken by an actress. I first met Monica at the Grange Public House, Langton. She had been for a horse riding lesson and had stopped there for some lunch. She was playing pool and I asked her for a game. Then we struck up a conversation. She was a warm and genuinely friendly person and made people feel at ease straight away. We arranged to meet the following week and she invited myself and my boyfriend back to her house for coffee and lunch. She told us that Michael was away on business, but we would meet him soon. A couple of weeks later, we met Michael, who told us immediately that he was in the SAS and had been away on some secret mission. At first, that sounded impressive, of course. I was young, and I had never met anyone like this before. Michael was a type 1 diabetic, but didn't look after himself that well. On several occasions when his bloods were out of sync, he would start an argument and had the most dreadful temper. One time he demolished the whole banister in the rented house they stayed in in Poona Road, Tunbridge Wells. That night there was a dreadful storm and torrential rain, and after he had thrown bits of the banister downstairs at myself and Monica, he took a gun and disappeared into the night, threatening to kill himself. He eventually returned home hours later and all was calm. I had gone home to my own house back then, but Monica told me this. I was scared for Monica. He really was a bully. And when he couldn't get his own way, like a spoilt child, he would argue, sulk, and then do something irrational for attention. He used to kiss Monica's forehead and stroke her hair as if she was a pet. He used to show her off and brag how lucky he was to have such a beauty. Just a shame he didn't treat her very well. As time went on, Monica became increasingly frustrated with Michael. She tried to educate him, but he wouldn't have it. His choice of friends was dire. She had decided in the end she wanted a divorce. She started saving small amounts of money to buy herself a ticket back to the States. She stashed this little black pouch in her wardrobe. But one day, in an argument, he ransacked her wardrobe, found her money bag and burnt it in front of her. 
She asked him for a divorce and he refused. He was obsessed with her. And really, if he couldn't have her, then he would make sure no one else would have her. In March of 1982, Monica had to go into hospital to have surgery on her teeth. This was at the private hospital in Great Missenden. I phoned the hospital and managed to speak with her, but she was very groggy. I felt very sorry for her at this time. I couldn't get through after that. Her phone was disconnected. But she wrote me a letter telling me that while she was in hospital, Michael had had the removal van in and moved most of the furniture out. She had no idea where he was, that he had purchased more guns illegally at Christmas of 1981, and that she was scared. I went with my boyfriend that weekend of the 19th of March and drove to Lambourne House. She was very scared, but so pleased to see us when she opened the door. She bolted it so that no one could get in. Erica, you've mentioned that there was things going off in England and yourself and your family are in the west coast of the USA, so a long way away. Was there concerns, you know, did you have family chats saying we're all concerned and we ought to do something or, or how did you deal with it? Well, first off, I used to love to send letters to my sister and we used to have to do airmail at that time and I'd write little fun things on there but Monica loved to write again she studied in journalism wanted to be in journalism but she loved to write and she always stayed in touch with my grandparents oh she loved grandma and grandpa so much and my parents she always stayed in touch and and I'd get calls from her on occasion and letters and things and Suddenly, I wouldn't say suddenly, but gradually it was like, we're not hearing anything. We're not writing. We're not getting any phone calls. The phone was disconnected. And um, my grandparents started getting calls in the middle of the night wondering if Monica's there. Um, We actually had a friend, my parents' friends, they owned a Yamaha motorcycle shop in Santa Rosa. And they were going for some kind of a motorcycle event in England, London. So when they went over there, my father asked them to try to call or contact Monica, and they were unable to contact her either. And my mother, and she remembers this at this point, um, she was just talking about the other day, there's certain things that my poor mother has just never, you know, both of us had to have, have had a very hard time healing. Um, but she said she went to my father and says, something's wrong. We haven't heard from Monica. I can't get a hold of her. She's not calling. That's not like Monica. And she was absolutely right. Because, again, Monica stayed in regular contact even before Michael. And uh, my father, he pretty much told her, don't worry. They're probably just trying to work things out. So he remained kind of optimistic, like, oh, they're just trying to work things out. You know, and... My mother sensed something was wrong. When I got the call, I was at work, and I was actually um, a certified nurse's assistant at the time, and I was at work with a patient. And I got a call. It was my father, and the first he said to me, and I never forgot, your sister is dead. That's what I heard, and that's when I found out. 
and the first thing I thought was Michael killed her. It's like I already knew. I, I had experienced her death. I don't know how that can be explained. And I already knew. So, you know, and at one point, you know, when Monica, the night she had actually passed away there, I literally physically felt my sister pass. I felt fear. I felt anger. I felt just terror. And I was here in the States and I did not know what went on with me. I just suddenly was in some kind of a rage. People that knew me very well had experienced me just snap into something else. It was, I could feel what happened. I could feel her. And she was terrified. Eventually, one evening in September, a news item came on the television. A body had been found, and I recognised the T-shirt it was dressed in. I knew in my heart then what had happened, so I went to my local police station and I gave a statement. It was a horrible ordeal for me, and I was upset for years. So, a simple chance meeting on a road in America. And it was just a family simply being friendly and inviting a stranger that all led back to where we started the previous episode, the discovery of a headless body, which is quickly identified as Monica Telling. I can imagine that many of you listening will have felt that there was a grim inevitability to all of this but it doesn't make it any less sad and it doesn't make it any less heartbreaking. No, it doesn't, does it? The the circumstances could have been so positive, couldn't they? If she'd have met this man, Michael, and he he wasn't really damaged as we now think he was and, and suffering from various illnesses, they could have been happily married and have had a fantastic life. But it's just, she met him, didn't know him, and it just developed. And, and she fell in love with him. And she fell in love with him. And all went horribly wrong, didn't it? Yeah, but like you say, it, it could have been so different. And I think it's all, you have to look at how Michael's upbringing, his personality, and then meet him with Monica, and Monica's reaction to him and obviously how he felt about Monica and the fact that he terrified her. He didn't need to do that. He he got the love of a of a woman that chose to marry him. It could have all been very different. And it's interesting what Erica said about at the time she didn't know, but had a feeling on the day when Monica did die she knew something had happened, but didn't know at that time that Monica had died. She just she just got a bad feeling and, and knew that something had happened. And I have heard of that before. I've come across it 
not through work, so to speak, but I've seen it on documentaries and different things. What do you think? I think when you've got a close connection to a family member, I think if something bad happens, there could be a reflection of the feeling of the injured person in in the recipient, if you like. it's. I think it could be a two-way street. I mean, we have friends uh, who do believe in it, don't they? So I wonder if it's just if you're attuned to it that you pick them up. I think if you're close family members and something bad happens, you can feel somebody else has hurt. I've never felt it, and I'm... And you haven't, but I'm convinced there must be something for the people that we know involved who follow these things and they genuinely believe there is these connections. Yeah, and how many times have you knocked on somebody's door as a police officer to tell them something's happened to one of their relatives? And yes, if if you open the door and there's a policeman stood there you may actually feel that something bad's happened, but how many times have you been at somebody's door and they've opened the door and they've said, it's my dad, isn't it? What's happened to my dad? Or they know the person that that you're there to talk about, that you're there to give them the message. And they've got lots of other members of the family. They've got husbands, wives, sisters, brothers, mothers, but they actually chose to say, it's my dad, isn't it? But when we spoke to Erica, she was But Erica convinced. was convinced that on the day of Monica's passing, that she felt that something bad had happened and she felt that something bad had happened to Monica. And he's very, very sure about that. Mm. Although Erica tells us that she, she had this feeling when Monica died... Her actual body wasn't discovered till five months after the date of her death, was it? That's right. Her her body was found on the 3rd of September. But Erica has a very strong feeling on the 29th of March that something bad's happening and something bad is happening to Monica. And she, she says, I felt her pass. So even though there's, there's a five months till... Monica's bodies found on the day of Monica's death Erica genuinely felt a connection and felt her passing you know at the time Monica was having a, you know a bad time of life but they'd all hoped quite genuinely that things were going to get better and move forward and they were going to rescue their marriage I suppose is the word isn't it and I think that was Monica's dad, Lou, when any questions were raised in the family about, oh, we haven't heard from Monica or Michael, his explanation was, I guess they're just trying to work things out. And that's not unusual, is it? We've come across that where the people have given people space, time. Yeah, and what what you've got to do is take yourself back to the early 80s we didn't have FaceTime, you know, we didn't have emails as, as such. We didn't have 
mobile phones. We didn't have all those ways of keeping in contact with each other. So, so the letters stopped. And I mean, even going back to the early eighties, you know, phone calls, phone calls were expensive. Yes. And, you know, combine it all together and if somebody's, you know, gone quiet for a while, you think, well, perhaps all is well and not realizing how bad the situation was. And it wasn't till she found out that she realized the dates coincided, was it? When she had this feeling. I've also heard from Christina about her relationship with Monica and it looks like, or it appears to be a very strong relationship. Uh, but Christina sounds like she was as, as scared of Michael as Monica was. Well, she witnessed several incidents, didn't she, where Michael's behaviour was of concern and that he was clearly uh, not acting as a normal person would and frightened everybody, I think. I think when they first came to live in the UK and Monica first met Christina and they were living in a rented property in Royal Tunbridge Wells and Christina was there with her boyfriend and Michael just just seemed to lose it and he, he smashed the banisters up and then he left the house with a gun threatening to kill himself. Which would scare anybody, I'd have thought. Absolutely. So she really is the only person independently who can put some meat on the bone with this. She's actually witnessed this and recalls it in uh, Steve's book and also for our podcast, which then gives it a bit more credence, doesn't it, what Michael was like? Because at the moment, we've only got third-hand information, haven't we, from Erica relaying what Monica had said was happening. She actually witnessed it, didn't she? I think if you take out family, because we don't always tell our families everything, I think if you take out family and then you take out professionals and you're left with friends, friends are the ones who are more likely to see you in your natural habitat, for want of a better word, your your natural relationship with each other. And of course, you can, if you do exhibit erratic behaviour, as Michael did, you could probably keep a lid on that for some of the time. But actually, if you spend a lot of time with your friends, you probably can't do it hour after hour after hour or day after day. So you're more likely that the friends are the ones who who see the real couple, who see the real Michael, who see the real Monica. And Christina was that close friend, wasn't she? And you would naturally believe that having witnessed what she did, she'd speak to Monica and say, what was that all about? And is this normal? And what else has he done? And is this how you live with him? You would do, wouldn't you, as a friend, a close friend, which he clearly was, and learn a lot more about what actually Michael was like. I don't know. I think I think some friend, it depends what kind of person you are, doesn't it? You might be the sort of person that if you think you need to ask questions, you might just be interfering or overstepping the mark. 
and you don't want to alienate your friends, so therefore you keep your thoughts to yourself. Possibly. I mean, we've known that happen, haven't we? People, when you say you must have known, they say, well, we didn't. We didn't want to ask. We didn't because want to we interfere. Didn't ask. And it was private between them and that sort of thing. So it's it could have been either way, couldn't it? She could know a lot more or less. We just don't know the full extent, do we? It wouldn't be right if we just left the story there, though. There are still some very sad events to talk about in regards to this investigation. So we hope you'll join us again for our final episode of this series in two weeks' time. So stay subscribed to this feed, or if you've just come across this episode by chance, now is a good time to push that button and subscribe. As ever, feel free to send us a message if you have your own thoughts about our investigations. You can find out more ways to do this via our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. Next time we'll discuss the further murder investigation and the court case that followed. You may think that that's the end of the story, but you would be wrong. The story continues with Michael Telling and what happened to the Zumsteg family. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Catherine McDermott, who also performed the Christina extracts. And it was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about this murder by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all our podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.